Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. Today is Friday, January 5th, 2007, and I'm Dr. Richard Savell. On our podcast today, we will be speaking with the incoming president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Frederick P. Ognebeni, MD, FCCM. Dr. Ognebeni will be beginning his year as the president during the 36th Critical Care Congress in Orlando, Florida, and we're very happy and excited about him being with us today. Uh, Dr. Ognebeni is currently the director of the Office of Clinical Research Training and Medical Education at the National Institutes of Health Clinical Center, and he's the director of the Clinical Research Training Program, uh, OIR, and in addition, he is an attending in the Medical Intensive Care Unit at the NIH uh, Clinical Center. Thank you so much, Fred, for joining us today on the podcast. Uh, You're welcome, Rich, and thanks for this opportunity. Um, I, I hope I got everything exactly right. I'm not quite sure what the OIR stood for, but maybe if you wanted to tell a little bit about that and then we'll get into the interview. Sure, just very briefly. That's an acronym for the Office of Intramural Research, which is the really the intramural branch of the large NIH enterprise. And that particular program is a year-long research program for medical and dental students that I direct. So is it a, is it a sort of a, a, a short fellowship kind of situation or an externship? They are considered fellows just because that's the name we came up with. But in effect, it's an opportunity for um, talented medical and dental students who have an interest in clinical research to actually work with a uh, clinical mentor and research mentor at the NIH Clinical Center um, conducting a project, either an independent project or one that's already been established by that investigator, and it gives them an opportunity to learn, you know, in a very much of a hands-on way, the the principles and practice of doing good clinical patient-based research. I thought we'd um, begin by using this whole podcast as an opportunity for the members of SCCM to get to know a little bit more about you before uh, we uh, meet you, you know, in the official forum during the upcoming Congress. And I was trying to read a little bit about your background. I think you and I both were uh, residents at Cornell, and and I know that uh, uh, maybe if you want to take it from there, how you ended up in critical care and at the NIH. Sure. I wish I could say that I was a peer of yours, because it would have been a pleasure working with you, but unfortunately, I was probably a generation ahead of you, Rich. But I did do my internal medicine training at uh, the New York Hospital, which is part of the Cornell complex in New York City. And um, unlike a lot of my other colleagues, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do as my next step. Um, at that point, I was very interested in a number of areas of internal medicine, uh, particularly those that maybe saw the sickest folks, um, infectious diseases, pulmonary disease, some rheumatologic disorders. But I wasn't quite sold on any one particular area for further training. 
it just so happened that um, <clears throat> my former chief medical resident when I was a third-year medical student happened to be Joe Perillo. And Joe Perillo, um, following his chief residency at the New York Hospital, went to Boston to do a cardiology fellowship at the Massachusetts General and returned to um, Cornell New York Hospital. And shortly thereafter, he actually got recruited to the NIH Clinical Center to start their critical care medicine program. And that was in 1981, early 1982. <clears throat> At that point, um, he realized he needed staff and, and fellows and contacted me along with three of my other colleagues who were in the similar position and asked if we would be interested in becoming his first fellows in critical care medicine at the National Institutes of Health Clinical Center. And from my perspective, it was um, actually a perfect match. First of all, I knew Joe and all that he stood for from a, a clinical and research standpoint. <clears throat> and it also was an opportunity for me to actually go into an area that I had liked a lot as a medical resident. You know, parenthetically, it was really the very early days of critical care. Um, and it gave me an opportunity to um, enter an, an environment I knew very little about actually thinking I would only be here three or four years, and it's been my entire professional career. One of the questions I had is, can you uh, paint a picture of what the NIH Clinical Center and the ICU is, is it like? Is it people that are coming in for research protocols, and, and how do they end up in that intensive care unit? Well, at the National Institutes of Health, all of there, first of all, there is a hospital here, and it's a 240-bed, state-of-the-art uh, clinical research center, <clears throat> which actually um, is, is a new building that was just open for patients in 2005. Um, so that's the physical plant. And all patients who are seen at the NIH Clinical Center are patients on a uh, protocol. And the protocols are really developed by the respective institutes and centers of the NIH, and there are many of them. So the portfolio of diseases studied really is... Um, institute-driven and based on the current investigators who are at the NIH in Bethesda, Maryland. With that being said, um, you know, again, all patients are on a protocol, but there is no, it's not a typical hospital in the sense that we don't have an emergency room. Uh, we don't have a trauma center. We actually do not see obstetrics and gynecology here. Um, but we do see a full range of adult and pediatric disorders, and many of them actually fall into the orphan disease category. And um, over the years, NIH has become a, a location where um, rare diseases can be studied in enough volume to actually um, pull together cohorts in a very productive way. And even though some may say, well, that's you know studying a very rare entity, I think the discoveries made with some of those rare entities can lead to other uh, broader discoveries. With that being said, the patients that come here range anywhere from, you know, very ambulatory and, and where they can have most of their workup and therapy done as outpatients to those who actually can be um, quite ill, either because of the consequences of a very serious disease or because, in many cases, they failed other conventional therapies and are really looking at um, uh, potentially innovative slash, um, you know, terminal therapies, but they're patients who have the dedication and foresight to realize that, you know, any potential is hopefully a, a positive potential, so they're very willing to um, undergo some of these new protocols. Uh, in that context, if those that come in who are 
quite sick because of their disease or because of a complication of therapy and they need intensive care, they would come to the unit. Uh, we don't have many primary uh, protocols in the intensive care unit for critical illnesses per se, but my colleagues and I do study diseases um, that do come into the ICU in an in organized way, and there are also some projects that are being studied that are not necessarily in patients that have an acute critical illness, but the observations being made in those um, studies actually can be translated into uh, critical illnesses. For example, one of my colleagues, uh, Anthony Sufardini, does work on endotoxin and infl inflammation in general and has a number of studies actually looking at the effects of um, endotoxin delivery in a very compartmentalized way, looking at both local and systemic effects of that therapy. So to answer your question, the patients are on protocol. They come to the ICU either because of a severe underlying illness or, in some cases, a complication of therapy or a progression of their disease. And um, well, I sort of had two questions to follow up. One is, so does that mean then that they stop being in a study when they have to go to your ICU, or does it depend on the particular situation? It really depends on the particular situation. <clears throat> in some cases, and this happens um, occasionally, they, if they're on a blinded therapy and knowing what that therapy is uh, may be important in, in terms of how they're being treated. So in that case, they would be terminated from a protocol and unblinded, and, and obviously the focus would be on their acute critical illness. Um, in other cases, if they come in to the ICU with what is considered a, um, a transient, reversible complication either of a therapy or of an intercurrent medical issue that may not be related to their protocol, all attempts are made to actually have them remain on protocol just because that is the nature of our operation here, that is our system. Um, but clearly we would never let a protocol interfere with the appropriate, you know, team-delivered care of a critically ill patient. Right, right. No, I was just wondering how that works, uh, interfacing and, and with all of that. W one of the other questions is, uh, and if you wanted to talk a little bit about this, from what I understand, there are also uh, fellows there, and that from what I could tell reading about your situation, you're very involved in the uh, education and training of that, if you want to talk for a couple of minutes. Sure. Um, you know, actually, since I've been here for most of my career, I have had the opportunity to come in as a trainee and a, primarily a clinician. I have then moved along into the research arena, primarily doing patient-based um, clinical research. And as I moved along, I also got very involved in education and for a number of years was the director of a critical care fellowship program, which is an internal-based critical care program at the NIH Clinical Center. Um, and while I was doing that, I was also uh, co-chairing the Graduate Medical Education Committee here. We actually have a total of 16 uh, primary and subspecialty training programs in uh, a variety of disciplines. And um, as my career has since evolved, I've actually, I'm limiting my clinical time much more now and really focused on an administrator in charge of a broad range of academic programs that are uh, both based in the clinical center and our um, trans-NIH initiatives as well, focusing on um, really training the next generation of clinical investigators anywhere from um, people that come for summer experiences as undergraduates hopefully will get the hook in early and they realize it's something they like and they go on to a medical dental school, graduate school, nursing school, and then um, have clin uh, clinical research as part of their career objectives. To medical and dental students, they've already made that next step. 
but yet don't really quite know what research is about, so we have plenty of opportunities for them, to people that are already here who may be here either for a subspecialty training or for another um, uh, training who want some formal didactics in the area of clinical research and its principles, and so I'm involved really at many levels, and all of which are very gratifying. And the most of the fellows, the, the critical care fellows, I would imagine, then would do uh, one, if not more, years of research as part of their fellowship there? Yes. As I mentioned, it's a internal medicine-based training, which in theory is two years of training on paper. Um, but I'd say that well over 50% and probably closer to 75 to 80% of our fellows do training for much longer. Um, clearly, they have a very comprehensive clinical year um, that is based on both a patient experience at the NIH Clinical Center along with um, a number of partnering hospitals that are in the greater Washington, D.C., Baltimore metropolitan area that gives them the full array, the full array of uh, critically ill patient populations that may not necessarily be seen at the clinical center. For example, I mentioned earlier we do not have a trauma center, so they see trauma at another institution. But after their clinical year, which is indeed comprehensive, they do spend at a minimum of one year, and many actually spend three, four, and five years really getting the skills to um, have them be independent investigators when they leave the NIH. So in that context, I think we all realize that that's not something you necessarily gain in one year, which was would really be the term of their fellowship on paper. So we do our best um, in all of our programs, critical care and others, to um, maintain an environment where they can uh, learn the skills, hopefully develop skills that will make them independent. They can develop a portfolio of uh, published peer-reviewed manuscripts, and ideally, when it's time to leave this very wonderful environment, they will be considered, um, you know, very valuable assets to the institutions looking at them for junior faculty positions. Well, I thought we could use this to transition into a little bit about. Uh your experience working with the Society of Critical Care Medicine, again, from trying to read about you, you've been involved for quite some time, and, and if you'd like to talk a little bit about how you became involved initially and perhaps some of the interesting changes you've seen both in critical care and in the society uh, over the years. Sure. Um, well, as you did realize, I, I became very involved very early on, and my initial involvement really, I think, is probably an involvement that many um, young physicians and nurses, pharmacists, respiratory therapists experience, and that is... Um, putting together an abstract to submit to the national meeting. And I remember my, the first year that I submitted abstracts was for a meeting um, in, two, in 1984, and I submitted three abstracts, and lo and behold, they were all accepted as oral presentations, which was a little bit shocking, but it certainly was a way to uh, get immersed pretty quickly into the organization. And that was my first foray. Um, after that, you know, I clearly um, had became a member in 1984, and over the course of years got involved um, as a volunteer in a number of different areas. I was involved with um, some of the educational endeavors of the organization. Um, I served on their program committee for a number of years and actually co-chaired a symposium in 1998 with um, my colleague Anthony Sufredini. I was involved in education on some of their critical care review courses. Um, I was fortunate enough to become a fellow in the American College of Critical Care at, in its inaugural year in the late 1980s and actually became active in the college as well, serving on its Board of Regents for a number of years. And basically, by doing these voluntary things, I realized the scope 
and breadth and depth of the organization, both in terms of what it not only what it did, but in terms of the fact that there were so many different professionals working together for the same common goal. And I think it really solidified my interest. And when I had the opportunity to um, run for council, and I must admit that I wasn't successful my ter- first time around, but I did persist and I was elected to an at-large seat and continued to be active in that capacity and then was fortunate enough to um, enter the leadership hierarchy. And as you've indicated, I will become president in February of 2007. Um well, there's lots of different things to talk about here, but but I, I thought one of the most interesting is sort of uh, what are some of the problems that you see, you know, facing critical care now, and what are some of the interesting uh, challenges that are the most interest to you working with the society over the next year? Well, I will. Um, I mean, that's that's a very uh, complicated, you know, I guess a series of questions. I mean, I think some of the obvious challenges that are really important in the area of critical care in general, um, I think, relate to care delivery. And I think a, a major challenge that we've realized, and not only we as a society, but um, our partnering organizations, the American Thoracic Society, the American College of Chest Physicians, and the Association of, of um, American Association of Critical Care Nurses, um, we've all realized that staffing and people power in ICUs is really you know, a, a very critical issue, and we work together to try to communicate that as effectively as we can to um, not only all of our members in the organization, but to work cohesively to communicate that to um, um, folks in Washington at the congressional end and that that might have some impact on ideally legislation to try to um, do something to enhance both the attraction of the careers, but also ways to address um, some of the physical challenges when you don't have enough staff in a hospital, be it in an ICU, which is certainly our area of interest, but it's, I think it's a global issue um, in, in most hospitals. And I think just keeping that on the front burner has been very, very important. Um, tied to that is you know, it's the concept of a healthy work environment. Um, you know, clearly critical care is an area that is very active. It's very high-stressed. Um, a lot happens very quickly to the sickest patients in the hospital, and as a consequence, I think there are opportunities for things to maybe not work best um, in that environment. But because we do advocate the multi-professional team of dedicated experts working in an ICU, and we, I think we, it's more than worries, we really do look at the team approach to critical care. And we do realize that as a society, the, the team is comprised of um, physicians, nurses, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, dietitians, social workers, social workers, ethicists, the clergy, that, um, you know, trying to make sure that they all have clear lines of communication, that they all work effectively together is really important. And that's something that we've stressed as an organization. I think it's something that, um, you know, may be problematic at some institutions and, and it certainly is an area that we will not um, fall back in, in terms of our perseverance, we do think that um, the team approach and having it work in a very healthy, organized way for the benefit of the patients is really very critical. Well, and it sounds like it, it sounds like just from what I've seen working with the society for a couple of years is it's one of the uh, great parts of the society is sharing stories of what works in certain ICUs and just how different, different ICUs can be, and yet uh, the Society of Critical Care Medicine being a forum to hear what works and what doesn't. Th- that is correct, and I think we do that in a variety of ways, as you've indicated some are 
maybe a little bit less formal, and that is, we, you know, we do have our um, bi-monthly publication, Critical Connections, where we do try to hone in on on stories that are frequently non-solicited, that people will write and say, you know, look, I'm at hospital X, Y, or Z, and I am a nurse in a trauma unit, and we were having a problem with whatever, and we relied on some of the things we learned either, you know, at a meeting or at one of your conferences, and we tried to focus with not only the ICU staff, but with the administration to have them understand what the issues were. And they've had their success, and then they've translated that into an anecdote or a story, which, you know, as you pointed out, I think, even though it happened at a particular institution, the same themes are probably uh, common at many, so we do find that a, a useful way of disseminating information. And also, as an organization, you know, we do have some initiatives where we're trying to look at you know, delivery of care and trying to make sure that it's done in the most efficient, effective way. And, um, you know, I think at our meetings we try to uh, promote the, that. And so it's not just cutting-edge science, but there are a number of things at our annual Congress, which is coming up soon in Orlando, whereby you can attend and actually learn some very practical um, items related to, to team, how you deal with uh, team dynamics, um, new innovative approaches to patient care, again, that are, that are multidisciplinary in their nature. So I think that it is a, you know, a very clear focus of the society, both formally and more anecdotally. I thought we'd, uh, again, transition into another area uh, in terms of relationship to the Society of Critical Care Medicine is getting involved, being involved. And, uh, you know, this might be a great opportunity to share with you what are some of the advantages for people who, you know, may go to the annual Congress but really haven't been involved in a, in a more formal way, and how are some of the ways they can go about doing that? Well, that's, I think, you know, very critical. Obviously, you know, in my story, you heard how I became involved relatively early on. Um, and, and for many people, I think going to the meeting is maybe all that they want to get out of the uh, association with the organization. That's, that's perfectly fine. But for those that have the energy, the time, and really the initiative to get involved, I mean, we do look upon our volunteers, which we actually call our creative community, in the Society of Critical Care Medicine is really very essential. Um, there's always a need for new ideas, new energy, and people that have less gray hair than I do to become involved so that they indeed will become the leaders of tomorrow. And with that being said, you know, it's, I don't have an exact number, but there are approximately seven to 800 volunteers who work in a variety of ways. Some of them um, work on the committees, and the Society has a very complex and a very broad committee structure. Um, all of our committees are typically uh, looking at sort of ongoing activities. Some of them are educational, some are more in the area of advocacy, um, but we do try to look at the range of our membership and, and committees really do try, we do try for the most part to have them represent the broad range of our membership so that they duly, truly do reflect the multiple disciplines of the organization. To join a committee may be a good first step for someone who uh, wants to learn more about the organization and learn in general how an organization functions. And uh, I think this is somewhat timely because there is an annual cycle that we follow in the society that um, in, during which we look at our volunteers. And um, right now there is an opportunity for those that may want to join a committee to actually go to... Um, 
the volunteer section of our website under secm.org slash membership, and there's actually an online application and information about the organizational structure of SECM as well as the committee and the committee charges. And for those that are interested in filling out a very simple application, um, there's a May 15th deadline. Once the applications are received, then one of the charges of the president-elect, and it's something that I had the pleasure of doing this past year, was to look at the list of volunteers and work with our staff partners to actually place everyone um, on a committee. People may not get the committee of their first choice, but you know, with the exception of a very few who um, were not particularly content with their assignment, almost everyone is very happy to be placed in the committee, very happy to be working as part of a team. And it's a great way for people that want to learn more about the organization and have the time to do so to get involved. Very personally, one of the parts that I find most enjoyable is you feel like you're part of something bigger. That's always been very exciting for me to be doing this. You're bigger than just your particular intensive care unit or your hospital. It's exciting. Correct. And it is an opportunity, I think. Um, you know, it's, it's always amazing to me. and It's humbling at the same time to see groups that really don't know each other well but come together, you know, maybe at the Society Congress for an initial meeting, but then to continue working after that fact, um, who can share ideas, who can work together as a team, and who can either do, uh, you know, ongoing work, for example, if it's an area of education, or if it's a very targeted project of the Society, pulling together what it takes to come up with a, a comprehensive uh, plan and product after working together as a, as a team. So the team concept actually is not only important at the bedside, but it's very important in how we construct our committees and, and it leads to, I think, our, some of our very, um, our, our most proud products as an organization. I know we've been talking for a little bit, but I really did want to ask you this question and let you uh, talk a little bit about the American College of Critical Care Medicine. And I understand it a little bit, but I know that it's involved in the creation of the guidelines, and it's the organization that's involved in the when you be, get the, the FCCM. But I'm not quite sure I understand the precise relationship. Is it separate from the society? And, and uh, maybe if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. The um, American College of Critical Care Medicine was created in of the late 1980s, 1988 to be exact, and it really it actually is a component of the organization. It's not a freestanding entity. But it was developed really um, as a way to recognize personnel, and they're called fellows, who really are their practitioners, researchers, administrators, educators, who have really made, um, I'd say, a significant or outstanding contribution to the field of critical care medicine. Um, the college is comprised of the full range of healthcare professionals, nurses, respiratory therapists, physicians, pharmacists, other um, uh, personnel who are all experts in their field. And um, there are certainly, there are criteria for selection. It's not an automatic um, membership. It's much like other honorific fellowships. And there are eligibility criteria which are on the um, website of the society if you click under um, the American College, but it, it, the eligibility requirements are not so onerous to make this an impossible task. I mean, basically, one has to have been a member of the society and have um, some evidence of competence in critical care, either by a certificate if they're a physician or other um, uh, documentation. They have to be actively licensed and practicing and spend at least 50% of their time in critical care. 
be it administration, research, practice, or whatever. And then to really be, to show signs that they've done more than just their job. And, and we have, we use the word significant um, in terms of the criteria, but if they've been significantly involved in either the development of programs or systems related to an aspect of critical care, or if they've contributed in a significant way to education, um, scientific contributions, um, leadership within our organization or others. And to be perfectly honest, you know, we look at the composite picture and some people have very strong components in one versus the other, but if the whole package put forward shows that they've got the experience, they've got the appropriate credentials in their background for training, and they have been involved beyond just doing their job at their local entity, then they would qualify for membership. Um, membership is done on an annual basis. There's actually, uh, again, the timing may be perfect. The deadline for submitting applications is um, March 15th of 2007, and there's a combination of an initial application where one who wants to become a fellow would go through uh, his or her background, and then there are the necessary supporting letters from members uh, who are already in the American College of Critical Care Medicine. But it's something that... um, Hopefully, many people aspire to, and certainly we as an organization are very proud of the fact that we've got this um, stellar group of people who you know, are the elder states people of the organization, although age is not necessarily a criterion, um, but they're people who have declared themselves as very dedicated and very involved in a significant way to critical care medicine. Well, this has been really uh, quite informative. Um, you know, these, it's uh, it's exciting to get involved, but as you pointed out, it's these organizations that are national. They, there are a lot of complexities. Are there any final comments you want to leave with the members of SCCM, given this is an opportunity uh, before we uh, hear more from you at the upcoming Congress? Well, I would certainly take this opportunity to encourage them that if they have not yet registered for the Congress to do so, it's going to be an incredible meeting in terms of its um, scientific and research excitement and lots of new interesting clinical things will be discussed at the meeting. We have had um, an amazing outpouring of support from our industry partners who will be there to um, you know, present to a very you know, captive audience the latest innovations in uh, therapy, devices, and critical care. So it is an opportunity to be very up-to-date with that regard. And um, at the same time, I like to say for those that can't come to the meeting, at least continue to read our journal, which um, I and others are very proud of. It's, it's, it's In terms of critical care, it's very highly regarded, not only in the critical care audience, but in terms of its impact across the board, both clinically and from a research standpoint. It's, it's doing very, very well. And Joe Perillo is a very apt editor and continues to bring to the journal some of the very best articles in critical care medicine. And lastly, um, I'd like to, again, extend an opportunity for those that have an interest and some time to become an active volunteer, to become part of our critical um, care creative community, and the opportunity is yours. Uh, the, the process is very simple, and you have until the middle of May to um, apply for and to join a committee. And with that being said, I look forward to actually serving as your leader in the year 2007. You know, clearly, an organization does not function just because there's a president. The president relies on a very strong 
volunteer staff and a very strong administrative staff, both of which we have. But at the same time, I think that, you know, there's an opportunity to, you know, work with me, maybe not directly, but I would like to, to welcome all that have an interest to help become part of our volunteer pool and our creative community. We've been speaking today with Frederick P. Ognebetti, MDFCCM, and he will be the president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine uh, for 2007, starting during the 36th Critical Care Congress in Orlando, Florida, February 17th through the 21st, 2007. Thank you very much, Dr. Ognebetti, for joining us on the podcast today. You're very welcome, Rich. This concludes our podcast for Friday, January 5th, 2007. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Register now for the Society's 36th Critical Care Congress to be held in Orlando, Florida, USA, February 17th through the 21st, 2007. Connect with your colleagues and gain a multi-professional perspective on clinical topics relevant to your daily ICU environment by attending the various cutting-edge sessions, hands-on workshops, informative symposia, and exciting social engagements. Don't miss the largest multi-professional critical care event of the year. Register today by speaking with an SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or by visiting www.sccm.org.